Hello, and welcome to Living Heritage, a show about people who are engaged in the heritage and culture sector, all those who keep heritage alive at the community level. I'm Dale Jarvis, and today's guest is Patrick Collins. Pat Collins, born and raised in Riverhead Harbor Grace, is a retired educator who taught in various communities throughout Newfoundland and Labrador. He finished his teaching career in education as a curriculum program specialist working in Avalon Peninsula School Districts. He is also a writer of historical fiction and has published five literary works. Currently, Patrick teaches at the Canadian Training Institute in Bay Roberts. I want to talk to you, Pat, about where you got interested in history. Well, I, I did a minor in history at Memorial uh, back in the early 70s and studied with people like Shan Bryan and did courses from Dr. Hiller and so on and so forth. And that got me started, and uh, that was very much academic. And, of course, uh, as I went back teaching, uh, I taught in Labrador and Gander and, and, uh, and Harbour Grace and Har- in places like Harris Desire and so on, uh, during my time as an adult, and as I grew into adulthood, uh, I took on a real great sense of an interest or interest in local history, and that's when my love of history really began. And uh, I then would begin talking to my parents who were still living back then, and other aunts and uncles and stuff. And of course, you know they were great storytellers. Mm-hmm. And I'd often wonder how much of the stories were true and sure. how much weren't. <laughs> and uh, it got me. It got me really interested. So a lot of my writing, for example, the murder of, uh, of you know, uh, of of the Garrett the Garrett murders on the south side, uh, you know, uh, the the, uh, the murders. Some of the stories about Johanna Hamilton. Uh, some of the stuff I've written about the murder at Mosquito Cove. And we heard all of those stories growing up, and I often wondered, you know. So that when I finally retired, that allowed me time then to go back and do some research in newspapers and so on. And just to find how much of this stuff was actually true. So who, who were the good storytellers in your family? Was there someone who stands out in your memory? Oh, my uncle, my uncle Jerry Collins, by far. I could sit down for hours, and I did, for hours and hours and hours, long after my kids were, themselves were growing up. I just listened to him talk. He told me things I never would have learned, and thank God. I wish, like you, Dale, I had taped him mm. or written the things down when he, when he actually spoke. But Jerry Collins was a great a great storyteller. My father himself was a great storyteller. A lot of the older people were, you know, and uh, and that's where I got my love of, of storytelling too from Jerry. You know, yeah. I often wonder now when I write my books if if he was alive now, he'd probably be calling me and saying, "Now, Pat, I would have said this differently." <laughs> yeah. So, where did he live? Did he was he in Riverhead? Yes. He yeah. actually lived on the old homestead and in the old house that my great great grandfather actually built. And then he subsequently tore it down, and then they built a new house, right? Yeah. And so he actually lived history, right? I can remember he actually had the immigration papers that my great-grandfather had. When they had come from yeah, Cork? Yeah, from Cork, yeah. yeah. And uh, somehow or other, uh, I think some uh, ferrets got in the house somehow or other and, and not away at the at certificates, and they got destroyed, right? Mm-hmm. I remember reading it. Patrick Joseph Collins uh, came here in 1834, and I remember actually seeing it, you know, and him showing it to me. Yeah, my uncle Jerry. Yeah. So, so do you? Why did they come at that time? Do you know why they why they left Ireland to come to Newfoundland? No, I don't. I I, I really don't. No, eighteen thirty thirty four. You know, it wasn't. I, I would say th- times were pretty pretty rough, and the, there was a lot of Irishmen came yeah. between eighteen hundred and eighteen thirty thirties and eighteen forties, and the stuff I've read now from the university. 
uh, tells me that, yes, some of it had to do with the potato famine, but there was a huge migration of people that ended up on the Avalon Peninsula, on the southern shore, and on the north side of Exception Bay, and in St. John's. Yeah. Many went on, on to Ireland. Uh, sorry, went, went on to uh, the United States. Yeah. Um, but uh, some of them stuck to Newfoundland, and many of them in Riverhead. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Th- there were always those strong historical connections between Newfoundland and the Boston states. Like lots of people had family. Did you? Did you, Did your family have a absolutely an American branch? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I had an uncle who went to the fish, and, I, and we're still very connected. He'd come back. His wife was from Torbay. He was from Riverhead, and they come back every summer, and almost every summer you can imagine. And he went away in the twenties and came back and uh, started off fishing and came back and uh, he, then he brought his children back with him. Then we go to Boston. Now I have a cousin in Boston and we think we're brother and sister. Yeah. We connect every three or four weeks by phone. And uh, my next novel, uh, which is going to be called What Lies Below, deals with a drug connection with South Boston. And that's where my uncle went to live in South Boston. So... I did a bit of research on South Boston and the fishery and uh, and what the connection was between Newfoundland. So it was great, was great for me because I could actually play with that a bit. Yeah, yeah. 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 You, you mentioned the, the Garrett case. Yeah. So uh, for people who aren't familiar with that, can you, can you uh, give me some of the background there? <clears throat> well, this was a case of where you had a man by the name of Patty Gein, Patty, Patty uh, Gein, who was a, 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 a man in his late 30s, and he hadn't been married, and there was another lady on the south side of Harbour Grace, her name was Jane. Jane, uh, uh, I forget her last name now, but her brother was Jane. Jane I'm having, having a, uh, a, a lapse of memory here now. But anyway, uh, Jane and Garrett was brother and sister, and Jane was uh, a woman who was married, and she, her father uh, passed down the farm to her, mm-hmm. and uh, Patty Patty Gein, uh, of course, just married her for the for the farm itself. And um, anyway, to make a long story short, uh, what happened was there was a girl by the name of Johanna Hamilton who came from Ireland to live in Riverhead with her sister who was married to a Drake. And she, this one, jo- Johanna, hoped to get a job as a, how, a servant girl with the Mons in Harbour Grace. And it turned out that the Mons weren't hiring. So Patty Gein was contacted by Osby, who worked for Mon, and he got her a job with Patty Gein, which was the worst thing that could have happened to Johanna Hamilton. So she, she actually, you know, went to Labrador with Patty, Patty Gein, and uh, he had a, a, he was a planter, and he had rooms in Square Island, Labrador. And while in Square Island, um, they fell in love. She thought she was in love. She was fifteen. He was like late thirties. He was really taking advantage of her. And of course, when they came back, uh, they they carried on this relationship just in the summertime while they were in Labrador. It was a seasonal thing, you know. And uh, of course. In the fourth year, she got pregnant, and that made her just like 19 or something like that. And uh, uh, Jane discovered uh, the pregnancy, and uh, in a rage, then she uh, you know, flew into uh, Patty, and Patty was drunk at the time, and he, uh, we find out later, either strangled her or, or shook her to death. And when he tried to hide her body, so uh, he convinced jo- Joanna to uh, help him. So he wrapped the wheels up with brim bags and rode the body in a cart up through Riverhead and put it in Gein's pit, we called it, still there today. 
and he sat the body up, and the, the doctor, Dr. Allen, thought that she had died of a heart attack because they let the body be found the next day by my great-grandfather, by the way, on the Sullivan side. Oh, wow, yeah. And uh, anyway, uh, it turned out that, of course, <clears throat> he had to also kill Jane's brother. Uh, his name was Garrett. And uh, in the process of killing him, burying him, Johanna had nothing to do with either one of the killings, but did help him uh, to, get, to hide the body. So they buried the body in a pen, a, a pig pen type thing. But the animals dug the body up, it's kind of graphic, dug him up. And of course the neighbors noticed the body and reported it to the police. And of course Patty Gein was discovered. And they convicted both Patty Gein and Johanna for the murders. We, we, so Johanna couldn't convince the court that she wasn't part of the murders. She admitted been part of hiding, hiding the bodies, but not been part of the murder. But she was still convicted to hang in St. John's. And of course, on his deathbed, Bishop Howley, Father Howley at the time, uh, heard about this, and uh, he uh, went to see Patty Gein, and he went to see uh, Pat, and Pat admitted in the confession that Johanna had nothing at all to do with the killings, and he had to go and convince the court, Supreme Court, that uh, that he had confessed that Johanna did not commit commit they were hanging an innocent woman, and the court wouldn't listen, so they had a stay of execution. But she had a child, the child while she was in jail. And that book I wrote was about how the child grew up in foster care, uh, not knowing that his father had been a murderer. And his mother, of course, what happened was Johanna was deported back to Ireland. We know that. We know the boat she went on, but I couldn't find out anything about where she was in Ireland. Mm. So that book talks a lot, does a lot about this story about that. And so the title of the book is? Um, it's called belonging. <coughs> yeah. belonging yeah. Now, yeah. I, so I have a question about your process, I guess, for how you do this. So some of this is um, kind of family history, oral history, things, stories you've been told. And then how do you take that information and, and turn it into a, a novel? Because I'm assuming you do supplemental research. and Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That, that's a really good question. I really didn't know how to do that. Like, I wanted to write, and I didn't know what the best way was. People want a good story, right? Mm-hmm. I, I think storytelling is wonderful, and I think people love a good story. And that's why I think just straight-up history is for historians is really interesting. But the question you ask is one that is dear to me because what I've discovered is that I just can't write anymore about fiction. I just can't do fiction. I think a lot about fiction, and I would say that would make a great story. For some reason, I can't write about it. So i got to find something that really happened, and then I can wax a little bit. So once I go back, so what I do, uh, Dale, to uh, answer your question, I remember or find out about a particular event, and if it's of real interest to me, I'll do some research, through, largely through papers, or coming in at the rooms and looking at the trial trials, or maybe at the AC Hunter or whatever, do some interviews maybe, and then uh, find out what really happened, and then sit down and say, now, how can I make this a whodunit? <laughs> or how can I make this into a story of interest? So then I'll say, well, let me just add on here, and let me just twist this a little bit. So in the case of belonging, the child who was born in jail in, in Her Majesty's Penitentiary, I mean, what became of that child? That child actually existed and happened. That child actually went to foster care. I called the convent. They kept the child till, she, till he was eight. So what did I do with that book? So I have the child becoming a, growing up, become a priest, and trying to discover his heritage. 
And that's what belonging becomes because he's always wondering where he belongs. And that's how that book came about. And so I fictionalized his life and tracing back his life, but I put in the real account of the confessions of Father Howley because the confessions were absolutely became, they they became published. Paddy Gein's confession actually became published. And uh, so I actually worked from there. Mm -hmm. So I really take the real story and then build on it. So so you've led a couple... A couple lives, like you've done some different things. You know, yeah. you worked in education, and you worked. Uh, you know, you're working now as a writer. You yeah. know, and you yeah. and you do a lot of volunteer work. I know in the community. Yeah. And um, we had had a conversation a little while ago about railway history because we were we're interested in the in the railway station in in uh, Harbor Grace. Right. And I didn't know that you had had another life. I right. guess uh, right. working with the railway. So yeah. h- how did you how did you get started on that? Well, I was a student back in 1973, and I applied with Canadian National to become a, a station uh, operator, which is uh, we receive train orders. So we're, you know how we have one track, single narrow gauge track, and when trains are on the same track coming towards each other, they had they hired people to say what train would go off on what siding, so the other train could pass by, and so on and so forth. And so I became an operator, and uh, much like an air traffic controller, except you're dealing with trains. So I trained in Harbour Grace in the old railway station, and uh, that's where I uh, I got a job with C, and I wrote a test on the old Ambroche that was docked in St. John's, and J.L. Brazel was the chief train dispatcher, and there was 50 of us, and I was the 10th one to get hired, and, and he said, where do you want to work? And I said, I'd like to work in, in Cornerbrook. And he said, well, I'm going to send you to Harbour Grace. So being from every head, he must have known. So he sent me to Harbour Grace, and uh, I trained with a my first station agent was Harold Cashin, who was the last station agent in Harbour Grace. I didn't know back then that that was the first station outside of St. John's to be built. That's the same building that's there now. Because yeah. the first station that was there was in 1884. That's the first car that came down there of passengers, 1884. And the famous Jack Shannon Mon came there on the, tra- on the train, and uh, John Mon, and uh, the great. Thomas Ridley and all these people yeah, would, have, these, would have been on that train. Big Harbor yeah. Grace merchant names, yeah. Absolutely. So I, yeah. I worked with three years then uh, with with the station, moving around you know, in the summertime as a student throughout Newfoundland. Whitburn, uh, I worked in Doyle's on the West Coast. I worked Cornerbrook. And there was a time of change with the railway because in 84, by the time 84 came, uh, nine, uh, seven, sorry, in 1974, 73, 74, 75, those were the years when the railway began to be, become in demise, and the CN bus came on, and then they took the passenger train off to the main line and left the freight on. <clears throat> so uh, the train uh, train traffic got lowered and trains got lowered and so on and so forth. So even though it worked, I had uh, thankfully I had the opportunity to become a uh, station operator right across the province mm-hmm. yeah, as a young man at age 17, 18, 19. So you can imagine how intimidated I was when I went to work with these old station agents, right? Yeah. Yeah. But it was a great, was a great uh, career for a young uh, university student. My first check as a teacher was half what I made at the railway. <laughs> <laughs> made me wonder, was I going the right direction? <laughs> yeah. uh, so are there memories that stand out for, for you? Uh, with the railway? With the railway, yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> in fact, when I get together now with some of my other st- station people, I call them operators, people like Roy Morris and Wayne Cashin and Wayne McCarthy, these guys, all young students, we often talk about 
the railway and the great memories. Um, you know how we used to get the, the old trade agents used to get mad at us because we couldn't do things quickly enough. You know and. Uh, and you know, being students, you, you, you did you were kind of lackadaisical, but these guys were right strict by the rules. And uh, so uh, I remember sitting down and uh, adding up numbers, for example, doing the books at the end of the day. You know, with the freight versus the bill of waiting and how much money you took in. And the agents were so used to adding up numbers in their minds, in their head. You know, they go forty six, twenty eight, thirty two, thirty nine, forty six, sixty nine, and do it in dollars, and do it in about two minutes. And you'd be there with a with one of those uh, cash registers trying to get numbers in, and they'd be they'd be, they say what university or what college do you go to, my son? You'll never get through math that way, right? So those are great great memories, and uh, and meeting those, and uh, they always had great stories of railways, and they'd say, oh, I remember, I'll tell you about this one now, and you'd be in the middle of something, and the agent would sit back and tell you a story about this particular train wreck or that particular train wreck or how somebody died, you know. Yeah. But I can remember going to places and, and meeting agents for the first time, famous agents like Archie McIsaac on the West Coast who was in Stephenville Crossing. He was synonymous with that with that station. Harold Cash in Harbour Grace was, you know, synonymous with Harbour Grace. And, you know, Mr. Daw up in Whitburn, uh, he was Mr. Railway in Whitburn. Whitburn was a, if you got in Whitburn, that was a major center. Bishop's Falls is a major center. So... You know the, the places like that were yeah. really hubs of uh, yeah, communication so, and transport in those days. Yeah, right, right, yeah. right. Even in the seventies, like that still would have been a. They were railway towns. Yeah, right? were, Whitburn, was, Whitburn was a railway town, and Bishop's Falls and Clarenville. These were these yards were places where, you know, where where things really happened. They eh? yeah. 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 You, you had mentioned, and I didn't know this that there the main station in Harbor Grace is the one that's kind of up at the top of the hill. Yes, but that there had been at one point a Riverhead station. Yes. Yeah, the Riverhead Station, yeah. Uh, we, since we last spoke, and I've done a little bit of research on that, and uh, the last station agent there was a man by the name of Norman Dorn, Norm Dorn. And uh, it was a station there, and uh, we I, I'm sort of thinking it closed maybe in the early 50s. Um, and also, Dale, just down from there, there was a trussel and a dam built on the, on the river called uh, Pinsbrook River, or Doyle's River, people refer to it differently. But it was a dam built there, so the trains could actually f- refill their engines with water. And there was a flume there or that, that they used from the dam to fill up those the engines, those old steam engines. Hmm. And that, that's gone now. Any remnants of it aren't there. Yeah, so uh, there was a lot of stuff. There was one in Spaniards Bay and one in Clark's Beach and Bay Roberts and so on. The other thing about the Harbor Grace Railway, because that was the first railway in Newfoundland, and it was actually called the Harbour Grace Railway. They meant to go to Halls Bay, of course, and then with with Whiteway, uh, the money just ran out, and they just decided that this guy Blackburn, who Blackburn Syndicate, they decided to run down to Harbour Grace from Whitburn. And of course, in 1910, they came down from Briggs Junction to Tilton, and that, and then they connected up Tilton with the north side of the south side of Trinity Bay and extended it to Harris Content and into Greats Cove. So back in the early 1900s, it was a fairly extensive. So the Harbor Race Railway was an independent company, incorporated and so on, and it never joined up with Newfoundland Railway until the uh, mid-1915 mid, or something like that. Mm. And it was, a, was actually a money maker because most of the population was on the Avalon Peninsula. And, of course, then it went out to Placentia at the same time. 
but there was a lot of resistance to the railway. Yeah. But um, the stories that I can say about the railway, I mean... Uh, you, you had a story about falling asleep. Oh, well... <laughs> I was hoping you wouldn't bring that up. <laughs> it's a good story. I sure, want to hear it again. Sure, I'm sure there's guys out there who went to work with me that was it, are saying that Pat, you should mention that because it's too embarrassing. But <laughs> it is true. But I was uh, these these station agents, these dispatchers in St. John's were, were very strict, very strict, because you had life and death in your hands. So when you got an order to say that you know train engine nine zero four heading west and train engine nine zero seven heading east. Take this order for 904 heading west. Take this order for 904 heading east. Drop into such and such siding. So I had two orders on my on my. I was in Doyle's. Doyle's was a little small community that's in uh, in the Cotterbury Valley. They had a fire, and the agent was the uh, the agent was situated. The actual railway was situated in a railway car that was about four feet from the track, and so uh, so the semaphore reached across the track like it would in other stations and uh, my first night in Dials it was raining heavy and uh, my first shift and there was a guy on a dispatcher in St. John's I won't mention his name but everybody was kind of scared of him because he'd fire you on the spot if you ever thought that you were in any way lax at all he'd fire you or suspend you so everybody was kind of scared of him you know so here we were like 18 years old and I was there and I was saying oh, well I've got to really stay awake night now and I had a night shift and um, I had two orders, one for train going east, one for, go, one for going west. And I had them pinned up on my board, and I had to stop the train with the semaphore, had it out. And I said, i got to stay awake, i got to stay awake. And I had parted all that day in Cornerbrook and all the day before, but I had to stay awake, but I didn't. So I fell asleep. And, of course, work trains are allowed to go through the semaphore because they have a direct connection with the dispatcher. They know exactly where the other trains were. They knew exactly what stations, what, what sidings to go off on. So it was a work train out in the cockroach going back and forth. And I didn't know this. So I had these orders on my board. And if the, if the train goes through and don't stop, then there's a life in my hands. i got to stop that train somehow. So I dozed off. And about 3 o'clock, I heard nothing but this racket going right through. And as I said, we had our own dedicated phone lines at the time. And I stepped on the pedal, which gave you access to the dispatcher. I guess he's rang. And everybody on the line could hear that there was a situation happening in Doyle's. And I said, emergency, emergency, mayday here in Doyle's, mayday, there's a problem. And he came on and he said, yes, go ahead, Collins, go ahead, right, really angry. Like I said, what just went by? He said, Collins, go back to sleep, for Christ's sake. He said, what do you think, it was a 747? It was a train, a work train. And, of course, the whole island just laughed, and I kept getting uh, these messages about how i got to learn to stay awake during, uh, <laughs> during uh, work time. Yeah, true story, yeah. That's, and that's, those are the kinds of things that happened. Of course, that trip still traveled around. Yeah. But there were cases where guys did fall asleep. Not me, but one, I won't mention his name, but one of my friends fell asleep, and the train went through. He had an order. He didn't stop the train. And he had to get out and hitchhike down to Trans-Canada to go to a nearest crossing and use a flashlight to stop the train because there was another train maybe 50 miles away yet, but he had to stop the train, make it back up, and go to the siding. So there are cases where, you know, not, not very many, if, and if the, and he did get suspended for that. He, had, he actually admitted it because the conductor had to report him, right, and the engineer had to report him. So, the, you know, it's a very serious job. 
Were there stories of wrecks or derailments that you you remember? Not in my time. Uh, I never saw any. I've heard stories of there happened what ha- of them of those having happened before, but not in my time. But I do remember one night I was on, <clears throat> and when the brakemen were being trained because they had students on as brakemen as well, and uh, when they were backing up a train on a siding, I don't know if you remember Dale, but at the end of the track on a siding there were two loops where the train railed where the, where the cars fit in so that was the stop that was the brake and so as they backed up the train like it could be 20 cars on the train so the brakemen were being trained to say 10 cars 5 cars 1 car and of course the engineer was slowing down all the time so by the time he got to 1 the train guy was almost stopped well this poor student hadn't judged it properly and I remember listening one night in Whitburn I heard this kid saying, uh, 20 cars, 15, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. And, and I heard a big racket, and the train went right over the edge of the track. And, of course, that student got fired. <laughs> but I remember, us again, that was a situation where we were all across the island we were laughing at that poor guy. But uh, anyway, he went, he just hadn't, he just hadn't adjusted properly, yeah, brakeman. You had a, a, a little story about having a drink one night. Oh, yeah, well, we had a... A drink one night uh, coming on I was coming on shift and uh, I can't say the name of the individual but it was in a particular junct- junction and it was a where, where a branch came down and it was on the west coast actually so people out there listening rail, all rail workers know and one guy who was noted for his drinking and uh, so I came into work about 12 o'clock and it was my first night on shift and he said well, he said, welcome, Pat. He said, you know, he said, we don't do much here during the nighttime. He said, there's not much traffic on the go tonight. So he said, uh, I'm going off now. He said, so I have a couple of drinks before I go home, right? He said, the old woman don't let me drink at home. So he said, I keep my stuff here. So I said, really? I said, yeah. So we went out in the shed, and he tore the, tore the top off a bottle and unscrewed the cork on it, and he poured himself up a big rum and dropped water. And he said, you have one now. I said, no, I'm not going to drink. I said, i got to stay stay awake. I said, you know, I, would, I don't drink on the job. Well, he said, I'm finished. So he said, sit down here on this box here. We'll have a drink. I said, all right, good enough. I said, well, so we both sat down in this box, and I had my coffee, and he had his drink, and he said, I might as well have another one now. And he laid the bottle back down on this on this box, and I said, Where, this, where's this heading to? And he said, well, that's going up the coast now. He said, tomorrow. He said, the poor girl. I said, what are you talking about? He said, ah, she passed away. He said, yesterday. He said, I'm still waiting. She said, to get up for the hearse to come down and get her. Here we were sitting on this on this box. <laughs> and I remember having to work that night, having sat on that box. And that agent was a, was a fine man. He wasn't drinking on the job. He had finished. <laughs> and I never drank. Uh, we're, we're coming towards the end of our, our time here. I'm, I'm curious about um, what's your next project? What's your next, uh, what are you working on now? I'm doing a book now. Um, on the what's called uh, I called it uh, what lies below. It's about a uh, submarine base that was in Harbour Grace. It was one submarine that was based there? It was an L, a class L twenty seven British submarine, and it was used for training between uh, Halifax and Harbour Grace. <clears throat> and this is uh, about a fellow from England who actually came here uh, from uh, from London, and he was a telegraph operator, and he was trained to uh, of course uh, send messages from the submarine. And of course, uh, on his off days, when the submarine was in St. John's in uh, Harbour Grace, he met uh, he met this family, uh, this young girl in that family, and um, from our area, 
and uh, he fell in love. And, of course, he had a girlfriend back home in England, and that's uh, always the way. And, of course, um, he was. she was a bit young. She was only just 14, just turning 15. He was like 19 or 18, something like that. And the father uh, of the girl went before the man left uh, after he served his uh, 16 months in Arab Greece. He said, when you want that sub, make sure you never come back here. He said, because said, my daughter is much too young for you. And the girl wrote and wrote and wrote during the war, and the guy never returned any answers. After the war was over, uh, the mother of the sailor wrote back and said that he had been killed, and that that's why he didn't return the, the letters. And, of course, the girl was devastated. So I took that story, and you know, Dale, that Harbour Grace Airport airfield was also a site for the HFDF station, a high-frequency direction-finding station, which tracked enemy submarines. So I connected that concept with this sailor. So I have him live and marry this out-of-religion girl, a Catholic girl from every head. And uh, she lives in a dysfunctional family whose father didn't like this English guy because he was Protestant and because he was English probably. <laughs> and he didn't quite fit the bill. And uh, so he gets, after the war, he gets work at the... Uh, he, the last two years, he switches from the Royal Canadian Navy to the Navy, to the, to the Royal Canadian Navy. And uh, that's what the story's about. And uh, it shows life. And then later in life, his grandson gets involved with drugs. And that's the South Boston connection. So it all comes up to the modern... The modern 2010. Day. It's the first yeah. contemporary novel for me. And if people want more information about you or your writing, how can they... Do you have a website? Oh, yes. Uh, Patrick Collins Writer on Facebook. Anybody wants to call me out there and copy a number down, 5962172. Or you can go on DRC Publishing. That's where all my books are. It's, there are seven, seven pieces of work there. This is my eighth novel now. So, uh, Great. So thank you very much. I appreciate it being thank here. Thank you. Thanks for coming on the show.